0: We're back. It is week number six at the True Crime B&B. Welcome back, y'all. We're happy to see you. Follow us on Instagram
1: if you have a chance. I just thought I'd mention at the beginning this time. Sure. Because the last time we just leave it to the end, I feel like a lot of people skip that. So, if you want to find us on Instagram, you can at True Crime b Yep. We will answer messages, so feel free if you have any requests or anything like that, or you just want to stop by and say hello.
0: Right, and answer some of our questions on there.
1: Yep. So without further ado mom beth is going to go first this week so go ahead
0: this week is going to be installment number two of my little mini series which is architect mayhem and you remember a couple weeks ago we did one on graham dwyer Mm -hmm. an irish architect this one is a dutch architect all right you're feeling living, living in england on december 17th 2010, 25-year-old landscape architect Joanna Yates walked out of the Bristol Ram Pub in Bristol, England, where she had been socializing with her colleagues, and she began the 30-minute walk home. Mm -hmm. She was seen a few times on CCTV. The final time that she was seen on CCTV, she was buying a pizza and some cider at a Tesco at 8.40 p.m., just after she had called her best friend Rebecca to set up a Christmas Eve get-together. Now, remember, this is a week before Christmas, so they're setting up a Christmas Eve get together. All right. Joanna's boyfriend, Greg Reardon, was out of town until December the 19th, and he, he had been unsuccessfully trying to contact her via phone and text during his trip. So when he returned to the apartment that they shared on the 19th, he tried again to call her because she wasn't there. Okay. He could hear her phone ringing, and when he found it, it was in the pocket of a coat, which was still in the flat. He found her purse and her keys, and he realized the cat seemed like it had not been cared for for several days. Oh, that's how you know. So he immediately called the police to let them know that she was missing and something was not right here. And he also called her parents to let them know what was going on. Both bottles of the cider that she had bought at the Tesco were still in the flat. One of them had been opened and partially consumed, but there was no sign of either the pizza or the packaging from the pizza.
1: Bizarre. Okay.
0: There was no evidence of a struggle. There was nothing that made it look like someone had forced their way into the flat. And this made investigators think that perhaps she may have known her attacker. So was the door locked when he got there? I don't know that. I don't believe there was any report that. I would assume so if they that. said that the, there was no evidence that there was tampering or anything like that. Well her keys were inside the apartment, so I don't know how the attacker would have gotten her out and then locked the door with her keys still in the apartment. Yeah. So I don't I don't don't really know know what to make of this just yet, okay. So on December twenty fifth, eight days after her disappearance, her frozen body was found approximately three miles from her home, near the entrance to a quarry. Hmm. She was clothed, but she was missing one sock, and the sock was not found at the location of her remains nor was it found in her home okay once her remains had thawed enough to perform a post-mortem examination it was determined that she had died by strangulation she had not been sexually assaulted And she did not eat any of the pizza that she had purchased on her way home the day she was taken.
1: But the box was there, right? No. No,
0: no, the box was not there. The box was not there. So whoever took her also took the whole pizza. That asshole. (laughs) I'm sorry. Just kick her while she's down. There was DNA found on her clothing and body. They didn't say what the source of the DNA was but they said that they found some DNA in the creases of her jeans behind her knees. Okay. And so there may have been grabbing her legs to pull her. So like skin cells or something like that? Yeah. Because I didn't get, I mean because they said she was not sexually assaulted and they didn't say anything about semen so I don't think that's Could even be like saliva or something weird like that, you know? Possibly. (laughs) Okay. So the DNA was found on her clothing and body and they collected it for testing the first suspect that was questioned by the police was the landlord of her apartment who lived in another apartment in the same house so it was a great big house divided into several apartments okay so the landlord was held he was questioned he was released on bail but later his bail was lifted and he was no longer considered to be a suspect and he actually ended up down the road sued the police for revealing too much information about him at the time of his questioning Mm -hmm. and there was a huge controversy regarding the assassination of his character in the press because they were calling him creepy and strange. He apparently was a headmaster at a school before he came to be the landlord of this apartment building. That happens so often
1: before they have enough information. Like Amanda Mm -hmm. Knox, look at that case. Like, Dane. Yeah.
0: So they were assassinating his character. They were digging up students from the school where he had been the headmaster, and they were saying really weird things about him. Said he was creepy, and they said he was strange, and that they went so far as to express... That he was a fan of dark and violent avant garde films. Don't mind me darting my eyes defensively. Uh, Yeah, really. (laughs) But um, it makes me think of Mr. Ballen. If you're a fan of the strange, dark, and unusual... Oh, Mom, turn the channel. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he eventually did win damages from the press for some of the defamatory statements that okay, they made about that him. that sucks. A third flat in the same house was occupied by 32-year-old Dutch architect Victor Tebak and his live-in girlfriend. Tebak was born in the Netherlands on February the 10th, 1978 and was the youngest of five siblings. He was an intelligent but introverted loner who studied architecture, building, and planning at Eindhoven University of Technology, and later went on to take PhD classes. But it really wasn't very clear whether he completed his PhD. But that's really not relevant. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because in the end, it, he's not going to use that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, unless you're. Uh,
1: why can I never remember the name of their last architect? You did. Graham Dwyer. Unless you're Graham Dwyer, then I guess you still get to be an architect in prison.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully. I'm not after his appeal's done. <sighs> Victor Tabak began dating his first serious girlfriend in 2007, and by then he was already 29 years old. But it was with this girlfriend that he moved into the flat in the same house where Joanna lived with her boyfriend. Okay. And although they lived in the same house and had related careers, remember Joanna was a landscape architect and Victor was an architect, They had never met prior to December 17th, 2010. Hmm. So I don't think Joanna and her boyfriend, Greg, had lived there for all that long yet.
1: Makes sense.
0: So Victor had been considered a possible suspect early in the investigation, but he had been ruled out. And shortly afterward, he returned to the Netherlands on vacation to visit his family. He had been the person who had cast suspicion upon the landlord, in the days following the discovery of Joanna's remains. Mm -hmm. He had actually called the police from Amsterdam and lied that the landlord had borrowed his car on the day of Joanna's disappearance. And that was the reason that the landlord had been looked at in the early days to begin with. So... Tabak returned home from Amsterdam, and this was shortly after a, a filmed reenactment of the crime that stirred up hundreds of clues, a bunch of reports of sightings, and there was specifically an anonymous tip by a woman caller, and because of this tip, Victor Tabak was re-examined and was subsequently arrested.
1: Okay, so they still don't know who she is, or are you getting
0: to that? <laughs> they, it doesn't matter who she is, because I, they didn't say who she was, but it was her tip And I believe, that what her tip was, was that they saw Victor's car. And that was why Victor had tried to throw him off the the scent by saying that the landlord had borrowed his car. I gotcha. Okay. The DNA samples that were taken from Joanna's body and clothing were filtered and concentrated and basically processed down so that they could produce a sample that was pure enough to obtain a, a good DNA profile, and then it was tested. Mm -hmm. The result was that the chance of the sample having come from anyone other than Victor Tabak was less than one in a billion. Wow, if the shoe fits then. (laughs) Yeah, so he initially denied any involvement in Joanna's death. But as they pressured him, he eventually pleaded guilty to manslaughter, still denying that he had intentionally murdered her. His story was that he had encountered her as she was coming home. They had talked for a few minutes. Basically, they just met that day. Mm -hmm. They talked for a few minutes. He claimed that she made a flirty comment and invited him to have a drink with her. He claimed that that for this reason, because of her flirty comment and offering to give him a drink of her cider that she just bought, he tried to kiss her. But then... Mm -hmm. He said she started screaming because he was trying to kiss her. Sounds like she wants it. Oh, yeah. She definitely wants you bad. Of course. And if you saw the pictures of her and him, you're like, yeah, dude. you're Keep dreaming. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So he claimed that she was screaming, and to stop her from screaming, he, big air quotes, lightly held her by the neck using minimal force for only about 20 seconds. And she died in a panic. I I can't. (laughs) In a panic, he took her body and dumped it at the quarry. Okay. So, of course, as you know, and I know, and anyone with any common sense knows, she wouldn't have died from his barely touching her neck for 20 seconds. So, this is clearly untrue.
1: Yeah, you can barely die. I mean, there's situations where you can, but like... From like throttling them for 20 seconds. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it later came out in testimony that he killed her because he was obsessed with violent sex. My script says violent sex, but it meant violent sex and pornography and there was actually this is horror horrifying there was a cache of child pornography found on his home computer so he was a horrible human in so many wonderful ways
1: i feel like his poor girlfriend too
0: yeah i don't know anything about her and i didn't look her up because she's not to blame here
1: okay and i'll give her the benefit of the doubt i'm gonna assume she had no freaking clue about any of that
0: so at the end of this trial, the jury deliberated for two days, and on October twenty eighth, 2011, he was found guilty of murder. Not manslaughter, but murder. Mm-hmm. He received a life sentence to serve a minimum of 20 years. And in the passing of the sentence, the justice made mention of a sexual element to the crime, despite Tabak's claims that there wasn't one.
1: Just because he didn't get any doesn't mean that...
0: Yeah. The intent was there, you know? like (laughs) Exactly. So, obviously, Joanna had affected a lot of people. Hundreds of people attended her memorial service. Her boyfriend, Greg Reardon, started a charity website in her name, which raises money on behalf of the families of missing people, which Mm -hmm. I think is really a neat cause. Mm -hmm. In a garden that she had been designing for a new hospital in Southmead, Bristol, she was commemorated with a permanent memorial. Because it was her work and they wanted to leave her presence in that garden. Also, an anthology of her design work was published. And in her name, an annual landscape design prize is awarded to a student at the University of Gloucestershire. So Joanna was taken far too soon, but her legacy is still creating opportunities for others who have come along behind her. And that's it for the second installment of Architect Mayhem. Proving that architects are just <sighs> as awful as the rest of the world.
1: Well, but she was also an architect of her own sorts, so...
0: Well, landscape architect. It's, it's different, related. obviously. Related. <laughs> it's related, though. It's definitely a, a similar design. Yeah, field. I don't
1: know if we should keep doing these segments because I'm
0: a little afraid to live with you now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what do you have this week? A growling stomach, apparently. Okay, I this week. you should have eaten. Yeah. I, I tried to order food hours ago, and you said no. I'm not hungry.
1: Okay, so this week, it's not murder, but it is accidental deaths, one that you will know very well. It is, I have two stories today because they're both kind of short, but I decided to dig into the survivors of the Titanic and okay. what happened to them afterwards. Okay. I actually was going to start with the first one, because I just love that story, but turns out the second one, the further I looked into it, the more horrific it got, like, sad. Okay. So I was like, let's start out with the bummer one, and then we'll move on to the
0: happier one at the end. All right, you're losing me, so just get on with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the first one is John Borland Thayer, but he goes by Jack, so a lot of people think that he's Mm -hmm. maybe who they based Jack from the Titanic movie. I thought he was totally fictional. Well, he is totally fictional, but a lot of people say that It was based on this guy and his retelling of the story. Okay. So he was born December 24th, 1894 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, so he is American. He was born to a prominent family. At the time of the Titanic, he had been traveling in Europe with his parents, John Borland Thayer II, and Marianne Thayer, along with their maid, Margaret Fleming. Okay. So they boarded the Titanic April 10th in Cherbourg? Starbourg? Anyway, so during this, he was in his cabin when he heard the collision happen and he went to go see what had happened because it was like 11.40 at night. So his parents were asleep, but they had like adjoining rooms. So he went up onto the deck to see what had happened and he saw just like sheets of ice on the ground and he was like, oh, that seems bad. So he... Went downstairs and knocked on his parents' door and woke them up, and that they all. Nice. Yeah, they're like, he's like, hey, I, I love you guys. Let's He clearly not...
0: wasn't an architect because otherwise he would have said, ha ha, here's my chance to kill people. Wow, well, okay.
1: And that took me a minute. I thought you were referencing the Randy Stair. Ha ha ha. ha. Because I was like, wait. <laughs>
0: that was five weeks ago. I know.
1: Okay, so he went and got his parents in their room, and they all together went back to the deck, and that's when they started noticing the ship started kind of tilting, and they were having trouble standing up straight. So they were like, this is getting a little bit worrisome. So they went yes. downstairs back to their cabins, put on a bunch of like layers of clothing, because it was really cold, and they also put on their life jackets at that point. So he then, when they went back up, it was in, everybody was in such a frenzy on the... The deck near the lifeboats and stuff that he actually lost track of his parents he had no idea where they were and he kind of just assumed maybe in the heat of everything they got on a lifeboat and i
0: need to try to do the same thing what about margaret fleming the maid they never mentioned her
1: again i just thought it was important to note that I she, bet was, she
0: was probably sleeping in one of the lower classes either, and maybe I, wasn't able to make it i'm then. i'm
1: positive she probably didn't make and it because they never note, mentioned there was her
0: a, an olympic ice skater named peggy fleming and i think her name was probably Margaret Fleming. Well maybe she
1: survived and that's like Margaret Fleming the fifth, sixth, seventh or something. I don't know. (laughs) So anyway he lost track of his parents and then he himself tried to board a uh, lifeboat because at the time he was only 17 years old. Oh okay. So he was like well maybe I have a chance because I'm technically a child but they said no you're too old. And he was denied access to any lifeboats. After being denied and told that he was going to have to fend for himself, he met another man named Milton Long, who was in the same boat, basically, well, literally. The oh same Ouch!
0: Boat. Ouch! Too soon! Too <laughs> soon! soon. <laughs> uh,
1: but he met Milton Long, and they together kind of devised a plan and said, "Well, if you jump, I'll jump." So they decided we're going to jump off the side of the boat together and try to swim as far as we can. Okay.
0: And that was before they were, you know, before it was standing on end and they before it was literally a in half.
1: Yeah. Okay. So they decided, yes, we'll do it. Milton kind of tried to back out because he wasn't a strong swimmer, and but and it was a really long way. And it's a really long, yeah. People forget that I
0: think that it's not just jumping into the ten foot area of the pool. Like, right. This is like. Forty feet below you, or fifty, and
1: freezing cold. So you're gonna lose sensation the second you hit that water. Yeah. But they did eventually decide to jump together, and so they jumped and never looked back. And unfortunately, that is the last time that Milton was ever seen. Oh, so geez. once in the water, Jack actually swam to a lifeboat called the collapsible B, which
0: doesn't <laughs> <that> sound <is yourself laughs> promising for a lifeboat. Name. I thought
1: the same what thing. The like, hell?
0: okay, what? I think I'll take
1: my chances on a different lifeboat, but <laughs> it's
0: like. Calling it, you know, the exploding pod or something. Well, they just got off this the boat that never
1: sinks. So maybe, ironically, the collapsible is the way to go. Um, So collapsible B, which is where a big, like, rogue wave had actually come by and flipped it on its head. So it was upside down, but people were managing to climb on top of it and just standing on the back of it and trying to keep it steady. Okay. So these men actually helped Jack up onto the back of it and he
0: ended up riding out the night on the back of that lifeboat. Was this lifeboat actually from the Titanic? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was from them or another, from there or another ship that, well, the way they Locked described the it, it was, like, whatever. from the
1: Titanic, and as they were lowering it, a wave came and hit the side of the ship and knocked it off the wires okay. that were holding it and, like,
0: yeah,
1: collapsed it. But I think they said about 30 men were either holding onto the side of it or standing onto it. Wow. Finally, he was pulled to safety into another lifeboat that happened across their way, lifeboat number 12. This was actually... a no
0: colorful name for that a, one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know the difference between just the lifeboat the and the death collapse-
0: bowl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> death bowl 12 came by and swooped them into their arms. So this was actually the last lifeboat that had survivors, at least, found by the Carpathia at 8.30 a.m. So once... He actually, on the way, he passed another lifeboat that was saved a little bit before him, which was lifeboat number four, which actually had his mother on board. He, at the time, because there was kind of a lot going on, he did not see his mother, but he did get reunited with her once they got onto the Carpathia. His father, unfortunately, did not make it. So Thayer was... Fun fact, one out of only 40 survivors who had jumped from the ship not, like, me, it onto a lifeboat of any kind. So everybody else, only 40 people that were not in lifeboats survived. Wow. So he later went on to graduate from the University of Pennsylvania and then married Lois Buchanan Cassatt. Together they had two sons, Edward Cassatt, Cassatt Thayer and John Borland, and three daughters, Lois, Julie, and Pauline Thayer. In 1920, he lost a son, Alexander Johnston Cassette there, soon after birth. Sorry for the siren. Yeah, I know. I'm losing track. <laughs> and then World War II came around, and Jack actually joined the army, and he served. Okay. And then, also, his sons were, like, 18 in the early 20s during the World War II, and they both served as well. So I was they... going to
0: say, he wasn't a young kid no, he was like at this point. So... In his 40s, 50s.
1: Wow. But both of his sons enlisted as well. His son Edward became a bomber pilot and was shot down in 1943, and his body was never recovered. Aww. And then on April 14th, the 32nd anniversary of the Titanic sinking, Jack's mother, Marion, who was also a survivor, passed away. On the anniversary? On the 32nd anniversary of her survival of the Titanic. That's bizarre. Isn't that crazy? Okay, so then, unfortunately, this is why I told you at the beginning, this got horrifically sad the more I read into. Of his life. On September 20th, 1945, Jack was so upset about the death of his mother, he actually commits suicide. Oh no. Yeah, so he was buried at the Church of Redeemer Cemetery in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and that's the story
0: of Jack there. Good grief.
1: Isn't that sad? I was like, after
0: all that this poor guy has been through. Well, yeah, but I mean his mom wasn't 20. She was, yeah, she I, was maybe not elderly, but she was... Well, that's the thing is she died of like natural causes. It's not like God. it was like some sudden like. I mean, and I, of course he's upset about the death of his mother, but well, he also what lost... does he think that's doing to his family? I know, because he's got. There had to be more to it than just the there death had to of his be, mother. but I, didn't I mean, wanna... there had to be something in his mind before absolutely, but and that might have been the. the straw that broke the camel's back, because one I incident... I am trying to
1: think. I don't think there was anything else
0: mentioned, though. But just, well, who knows what's going it, on it in your private it, mind, you know? It wasn't like, ever recorded anyplace.
1: Yeah, because he did write books about his survival of the Titanic and his experience, but I'm sure you're not going to mention, oh, here's all the shitty stuff that happened to me afterwards <laughs> in my personal life. It's, too. Seriously. But on a slightly more uplifting story, I'm going to bring you the story of Charles John Joffin. He was born August 3rd, 1878 in Birkenhead, England. He first went to sea in 1889 at the age of 11 and discovered he really loved it, so he decided to start just having various roles on different cruise liners and stuff like that, and he mm-hmm. just made that a career. Okay. Okay. On November seventeenth, nineteen o six, he married Louise Woodward and had a daughter in nineteen o seven, named Agnes. In nineteen o nine, had their son Roland. And then, April two thousand and twelve, he got a very an awesome job opportunity as the chief baker aboard the RMS Titanic in I her think maiden That village. would have been 1912,
0: not 2012. In nineteen
1: twelve, not two thousand and twelve. In you didn't hear about the second Titanic? <laughs> He's a time
0: traveler. <laughs>
1: yes, my bad. Nineteen twelve. So he was the chief baker, and on April 4th, they departed from Southampton, and during this, he made a monthly wage of 12 pounds. Yeah. Which in today's time is either 1,520 pounds or $2,065 dollars. In the US. Okay. Below him he had a staff of 13 bakers and he was just in charge of all of them and coordinating what they would do throughout the day. On April 14th we all know it hit the iceberg at 11 40 p.m. while he was in his bunk and he actually felt the collision and this was kind of up in the air a lot of people say he had been drinking which he was off his shift who cares But he had been drinking that whole night, and so he was already pretty intoxicated at this point. But he heard the collision, and he was kind of like, he heard on the grapevine from other employees that what was happening that everybody was going okay we need to prepare the lifeboats. Everybody needs to start working like get together and save as many people as we can right now because this baby's going down. Yeah. (laughs) So during this he sent 13 of his employees, the 13 bakers under him and told them you guys all need to get up, get dressed, go put on your life vest and we're going to start loading people into lifeboats. So he was in charge of, even though he was so intoxicated, he kept a straight mind. He kept everybody knowing what they were doing at all times. He actually at the end of it all of his bakers got into a lifeboat of their own and he provided them each with four loaves of bread and I think the idea was we have somebody who's familiar with ships and like can kind of keep us all safe and stuff but we also will have rations for we don't know how long it's going to take for somebody to find us in the lifeboat. Right. He himself. Nobody else in the
0: lifeboats had four loaves of bread.
1: Yeah. Well, that's probably what they use as like the the token to get on. Yeah, I'm a man and I'm not a child but I have bread. So... (laughs) Maybe so. So he himself stayed in his cabin until 12.30 a.m. So that's when he had, they said a tumbler. I don't know how big of a tumbler, but they said he chugged a tumbler full of liquor at this point, because if you're gonna go down, why not? Like So he goes back, after chugging that, he goes back upstairs to see on deck and see if he can help with anything else in the
0: rescue mission. Well, if you're gonna die of hypothermia, a little bit of liquor, not gonna help well, hold you, on to but that. it's not gonna hurt you. Either. Hold on to
1: that. So at this point, he, he's back on the deck, and he spots chief officer, Henry Wilde, by lifeboat 10, which would later be the lifeboat that got Jack Thayer to safety, assisting women and children in. At this point, the women saw how far down it was and began just absolutely panicking and running away from the lifeboat saying, they were safe around the Titanic, they'll take their chances. They're not even going to get in the boat. Well,
0: that's just not a good judgment at all. So,
1: at this point, Charles has had enough. He's already kind of decided, I'm going down the ship. God damn it, you're getting in that lifeboat. And he would just haul them over his shoulder and threw them on a lifeboat and said all right lower them (laughs) but he got probably a lot of people to safety because he was like absolutely not no panic
0: and he never would have done that if he wasn't liquored probably not like it's that liquid courage
1: so they actually assigned him captain of lifeboat 10 but he decided there's already two sailors i got some of my men on there we don't need any more people on there so he let other people go instead of him and stayed
0: on the ship. Okay. Sounds like he was doing a lot of good on the ship anyway. Oh yeah, this is like, that's why I was like, I like this story. It's He's like the lifeboat enforcer.
1: He's a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when he went back to the boat deck, then he went downstairs, had another a drop of liquor as he would put in his memoir. So he's just drinking all night long. <laughs> so after that, he went back to the boat deck. All lifeboats had been lowered at this point, And he went back to the promenade and he saw all of the chairs Laid out like all the tanning chairs and stuff, mm-hmm. and he realized these could be used as like a flotation device to anybody who didn't make it on, like, onto a lifeboat. Okay, so he starts just taking the lawn chairs and chucking them over were the they side. Made of wood? I don't know what they were made of, but apparently they floated. I'm guessing they were wood. <laughs> Does wood float? Yes, wood floats. I've never seen wood float. Have you ever, well, been I guess, like, drift out of the house? <laughs> Not in, like, two years. Okay. So, anyway, so he, again, was thinking ahead and throwing these overboard for people. He then went to the pantry to get water, but he heard a loud crash. And so he ran back upstairs, and that's when he realized the ship was breaking in half. As He doesn't even realize what's happening yet, but the ship just gave way, and he was on the part that fell back into the water. Okay. So he said that just catapulted everybody around him against, like, the life railings. Yeah. So, at this point, he's doesn't really know what to do. And he's like, I guess this is really gonna happen a lot sooner than we thought. Part of the, he's actually the reason in the Titanic movie when Jack and Rose get on the other side of the railing and ride the ship down, that's literally what he did. (laughs) So he pulled himself to the outside of the railing and just waited until he was like almost in the water.
0: Put gravity in his favor.
1: Uh Uh-huh, so he uh, rode the ship all the way down and he said he, I didn't put the quote, but he said something about, didn't even get my hair wet. Just swam right (laughs) off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he was because he wrote it all the way down. He was literally on the last piece that went down into the water. He was the last survivor to ever leave the ship. Oh
0: wow, mm-hmm. that's something, right? It's
1: kind of cool. That's some bragging rights
0: at the. It's amazing oh. he didn't get sucked down with it. I know. I thought it
1: would have been bigger issue than it was in the movie too but yeah I don't
0: know well I mean I thought that when it went under the water that it would suck you in and so how did he get away from it he didn't really that wasn't addressed he was too drunk to remember that that's (laughs) probably it honestly he's like I was up there and then I wasn't
1: (laughs) so for the next two hours he just continued to tread water and paddle doggy paddle until he came across an overturned lifeboat the good old collapsible with 30 men standing (laughs) on top of it the collapsible and one of the men on top of this boat was uh the cook of the ship isaac maynard and he recognized charles and so he said there's no room on board for you but he held his hand so that he would stay like close to the ship Aww. i mean close to the boat and like okay. yeah and that way he didn't have to like keep kicking and he using all him. of his energy he told him he told him what told him. Oh, like a truck.
0: Okay. Not told him, like totem pole. I thought
1: you were saying in an accent, you told him. <laughs> like, <laughs> she told you. Like, you know. Yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so another lifeboat then happened by, so Charles let go and swam to it and he boarded, again, being rescued by the RMS Carpathia. At the end of the day, Charles was completely unharmed, had no injuries other than he had slightly uh, swollen feet. Slightly swollen feet. Not not even hypothermia. And he later admitted to hardly feeling the cold because the liquor that he chugged, he was like, I wasn't even
0: shivering or anything. <laughs> well, he probably was. He just didn't realize yeah, it. Yeah. Because, I mean, alcohol actually will make hypothermia happen oh, yeah. faster. Oh, yeah. But he just didn't care because That's he was why so... I think it's amazing. He didn't even get adrenaline. like pneumonia or anything. I mean, adrenaline was probably helping keep him sober too.
1: For sure, and I don't know, I just think that's incredible (laughs) that he literally had not a scratch on him.
0: Yeah, well, his feet, his hair wasn't
1: wet. His hair wasn't even wet. And his feet
0: were swollen, so.
1: So, after the Titanic, he survived. He went back to his wife and children in England, but unfortunately his wife Louise died in 1919 during childbirth and... During that, he also lost his son, Richard. So in 1920, wanting to start over, I don't know where his kids were, because his kids were still like in their teens. I don't know if he took them with. But in 1920, he moved permanently to Patterson, New Jersey, and again, married. This time, a woman named Annie Eleanor Ripley. And he had a daughter, Rose, so that became his stepdaughter. Annie died in 1943, which completely devastated him. And after that, he actually continued to keep himself busy and started working again in World War II, on transport ships so the titanic did not scare him off of his love of the sea so he continued to do that until he retired in 1944 and then on december 9th, 1956 at 78 years old he died in patterson new jersey of pneumonia so at the end of the day he was buried with his wife annie in cedar lawn cemetery in patterson new jersey Wow. that's my story. What an
0: amazing story that guy had.
1: I know. He lived to 78. Like, that's a good life.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not old, old, but it's like... No, it's not. But, I mean, for that time period, that was a pretty mm -hmm. decent age to live to. For sure. And what a bunch of stories that guy had. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing.
1: I do find it kind of ironic that he died of pneumonia, but you were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for like
0: eight hours, (laughs) but you didn't get a thing.
1: yeah so do you have any fun facts for us there's one thing I want to say before we go have you seen the video on the internet where they did Titanic with a cat
0: I did not where they
1: replaced Rose and all the romantic scenes <laughs> with him like holding the cat okay I'll show you after we're done with this but everybody go look up this video it is the funniest thing I've ever seen in is my it life. the movie like from the? It's real literally movie, but Leonardo they just... DiCaprio like the dancing scene and the little club they're like holding his cat s- he's spinning around holding the cat up. <laughs> uh, watch it it's great
0: so on that note, I think we're going to go order some food. Oh, for Call sure. I'm really hungry. Yep. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Yeah. So thanks for hanging around for episode six and part two of Architect Mayhem, and we will see you again next week.
1: Yep. Hope to hear from you. Don't forget to send us some messages. <laughs>
0: oh. Oh, geez. Oh. Bailey's stomach oh. just played a, a bit part I said in this the food episode. word, and now it's coming for me. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.